please give your attention to a reading from God's Word. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. You may remember this season we are spending time in the Psalms. And if you've been here in years past during the time of Advent, we have spent large portions of time in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and some small amount of time in Ezekiel and the Minor Prophets. And this year we are spending our time in Advent in the book of Psalms, and we're looking at four specific Psalms which call to mind the anticipation of Christ that the Israelites were experiencing and expecting. One of the things that's very interesting about that is this chapter almost seems like there's nothing missing or nothing wrong. But actually what the psalmist is doing in this chapter is he's giving us a vision of who the Messiah will be when he comes. And that vision is extremely important because the readers of this psalm are not primarily David or David's fellows. The readers of this psalm are the people of Israel in exile. The psalmist wrote their psalms and then distributed them among the people, sending them forth from the tabernacle, and they would hear these words, and they would hear this word, these words of encouragement, and yet, we're, as we're going to see in just a few short minutes, nothing of what is said in this chapter is actually coming to pass in Israel's history. And so even as we were listening, it might have been kind of confusing because nothing seems wrong in this chapter, and yet... If we look closely, we're, as we will in a few minutes, we're about to see everything is wrong in this chapter. Everything is, this chapter demonstrates quite clearly the deep need for a mighty change, a change that the psalmist cannot bring, and as he tell, tells his hearers, a, a change that the princes of the earth also cannot bring. So this message is entitled, Do Not trust in princes and men. And the reason for this is because the psalmist uses this word princes, do not trust in princes. But, but I think what he's saying is all of mankind, every single man, is susceptible to the sorts of problems that we see these princes be susceptible to. And so first we're going to look at the, the inevitable death of all men. 
And this is a fitting subject for our time in, in Advent because we are approaching the winter of the year and oftentimes we discuss the later years of our life as the winter of life, the time in which we look forward to or are, are expecting our soon uh, death and our soon departure from this earth. And the psalmist brings that out quite clearly in these first few verses. We're going to look at the glory of the creator as it's put forth by the psalmist to remind the people of who Yahweh is and then how that glory is connected to his nearness to humanity. We see this great and beautiful vision of God and then instantaneously and immediately we see a nearness to humanity, something that is not present at all at the beginning in these first verses of 5 and 6 and then just instantaneously shows up in 7 eight, and nine. And so moving from that, we're going to look at the herald of God's victory. The end of this psalm it, uh, contains a promise of God's future blessing, God's future reign as being profitable for his people. And if you were listening closely, you might have noticed that we went from present tense verbs to future tense verbs in the final verse. And I think that's really significant as we're going to see here in just a, a little bit. So I want to look at these four things. And then what we're going to do, if you have your Bibles with you, there are Bibles in the pews. It may help you at the end. We're going to work our way backwards in the psalm. And this is something I, I don't do often, but it is sometimes a helpful technique. We're going to go verse by verse through the psalm, and then we're going to rewind with a brand new perspective. And I think this will be really profitable for you in that regard. So the psalmist begins with a call to praise the Lord. The first verse actually says, praise the Lord. And that's not just speaking to his soul. He's saying, praise the Lord. And he's announcing that to the people. He says, praise the Lord. And that's a plural command. And then he says, praise the Lord, O my soul. And so even at the onset, we see this is a message directed to God's people. This is a message that is directed to the assembly and a message that is directed to myself. We have the many and the one here in this first verse. He says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Verse 2, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. This is an extremely beautiful sense. It is right for us as believers to promise our obedience and fealty and faithfulness. And almost instantaneously, however, this wonderful, glorious promise becomes something that's actually quite sad. It becomes macabre very quickly. First, we have this noble vision. All God's people will praise the Lord. Even my own soul will praise the Lord. As long as I live, I'll praise as long as I have my being. And then we start to take notice. It's, it's almost as if we're watching a play. We have a glorious scene. It's a comedy. And instantaneously, it switches to a tragedy. You see, the great problem here is what the psalmist mentions. I'll praise the Lord forever, well, as long as I'm alive. And that begins to bring forth a theme in this psalm of death and the inevitability of death. What's the great problem? Is that as soon as I die, my praise will end. All of God's people should praise him. Even my own soul will praise him, but I can't praise him forever. And if we think selfishly, that great problem is that I'm going to die. You are going to die. I think at this point you are well aware of my love for, based on what I consider to be a wise statement from 
uh, Jonathan Edwards resolved to contemplate frequently the hour of my departure. And so this problem that's presented in this first and second verse is, I'm going to die. But here's the more significant problem. It's not that I'm going to die. It's that God's praise will end when I die. It's not that I'm going to die, although that's terrible and tragic for myself. God is worthy of infinite glory and praise. He is worthy of unceasing adoration. He's worthy of day and night contemplation and adoration and glorification. And when I die, I cannot praise him any longer because I'm going to return to the dust. And building on this theme of death, the psalmist then instructs us how to live. It's very important that you understand the psalms and even songs we sing in our church today, uh, they're not just attributions of praise to God. They're also instructions to us as people. The psalmist then teaches us, just like he's expounding the law, he says, therefore put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This is where we are all headed. You are going to die. I am going to die. If you've ever watched the, that wonderful movie, What About Bob? You might remember Siggy. What is Siggy's problem? He, is, he has no ability. Do you remember the moment? If you haven't seen that movie, there's this young boy. He's the son of a psychiatrist. This is why it's funny. The psychiatrist or psychologist uh, is, is supposed to deliver people from their fears. And his son in the movie, the comedic element to this, is bound by death. He wears dark clothing. He's afraid of jumping into the water. He, he is... Everything in life has turned sour to him. He says, what's the point? I'm going to die. And as funny as it is, if, if we were ever honest with ourselves, as sinners, we have nothing to do with life because we cannot escape the inevitability of death. This is what the psalmist is saying. Don't put your trust in princes because on the day that they die, their plans come to nothing. Great tax reform. On the day they die, it comes to nothing. Military conquest. Guess what? Alexander is not continuing to, you know, pillage and siege. Caesar has no army any longer. Pharaoh's army was drowned in the sea. On the day they die, their plans <laughs> perish. It's interesting to say that their plans perish because their plans are seen by this word perish. We don't often think of ideas as perishing. The psalmist is using a word that indicates that their plans were an extension of who they were as people, and so their plans perish. So, as those made in God's image, we naturally tend in life to place our trust in human power, human wisdom, and human strength. Think of every political promise you've ever heard. Do not put your trust in princes. Yet, by these verses, we must recognize that all men die. Now, does this mean that governmental offices are evil? No. It simply means that government and life and economy and business and the, the plan for family, the plan for marriage, all of them must be reined in to reality. The recent stories in our culture of sexual abuse by celebrities and politicians highlight this, and they bring up to remembrance this problem acutely. Not only should we not trust in princes for they will die, we should also not trust in princes because they are evil 
men. Though they are currently shamed, these people who, in the la- if you've been paying attention in the news, you may remember there's about 10 to 15 major uh, famous people, celebrities, politicians who've recently been accused of sexual sin. And what has happened is they've had to leave their place of either office or, or their career or their position in news or in culture. They've left, and the reason for this is because of their great sin. The problem, however, as we mentioned last week, and I wanted to highlight, is that our country celebrates sexual wickedness of one type. In 2015, the Supreme Court solemnized so-called same-sex marriage, which is not a reality. They attempted to wield godlike power in creating that reality. And as a culture, we celebrate now, I'm not saying the Christian culture, although there are fringe parts who call themselves Christians who have imbibed of this false doctrine, but our culture as a whole, the American population, by a large majority, celebrates that sexual wickedness, and then we're absolutely horrified when sexual wickedness takes a different form that we don't want. And so these people, although they're currently being shamed and put away from society and they have to be hidden and they have to go into exile, so to speak, they are a mirror of who we are as a country. Further, because there's no shared grace or shared gospel in the culture, they can't be extended any grace. I I don't remember the names of the people, but I I heard about this week one of the people, um, I think it was one of Matt Lauer's uh, correspondent, someone who worked with him, uh, he was a news anchor at one of the news stations, she expressed some concern for him and that she said something to the effect of, I hope he gets healing. And instantaneously on Twitter, she was blasted. And you know what I mean by blasted? People were writing things on Twitter saying, how could you, you know, how could you forgive this person? How could you, you know, he should be locked up, he should be in jail. It may be true that he should be locked up and she, he should be in jail. What she was expressing, because she is a Christian, she was expressing she hopes he gets some healing and finds grace and forgiveness. But you see, because we have such massive amounts of guilt as a culture, with the issue of abortion, with, with approving of sexual proclivities that are horrific to God, we innately know and understand our guilt. And so what do we do when national figures or popular people are exposed in their sin, we have to scapegoat them. Yes. We, we transfer our guilt on, and our shame onto them. They have to leave. What's the atonement in our culture? It is they leave their position of authority, they go into the exile of rehab, and then they return to a lower station. As Christians, we ought to be reading the culture through God's eyes. I believe that is what this psalm would have us to understand. We cannot trust men. And by that, I don't mean men versus women. We can't trust women and not trust men. I mean, we cannot trust mankind. Man who is a sinner, who is not redeemed by Christ, cannot be trusted. Nevertheless, the psalmist then goes on to say that we should not trust in princes. And then he goes on to teach who should we trust in princes. Before we get there, I want to point out this. If you have not taken this time of the season of Advent to reflect upon the very near timing of that along with our church calendar, it might might be profitable for you to consider this if God should mark iniquities, who could stand? You see a very small percentage 
of the national figures in our country have been exposed as those who have been abusive sexually to their fellow man. But if God should mark abuses, who could stand? No one is guiltless of sexual sin. That's what these sort of national scenarios should prompt you to remember. That if we were all to be exposed, who could remain blameless? And the, the, It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one remains blameless. So surely trusting man is a folly. Not only will man die, but also man is evil and man is limited in his power. And even if he was infinite in his power, that's why I brought up those empires, Alexander, Caesar, Pharaoh, infinite in their day, so to speak, of the power that they wielded, but they did not escape death. No matter who we place our trust in, as men, they cannot fulfill our ultimate hopes, longings, and desires. This is why it's such a folly for the American church to be so in love with political figures. They cannot satisfy our ultimate longings. They cannot bring true contentment of soul. Not only will their plans fail, they themselves cannot stave off death. I mean, think about that for a second. If a person, especially a political leader, says, trust me, I will make the economy profitable again. We'll grow again as a culture. Think about that. What he's, what he's saying is he can wield authority and power over the emotions of millions and millions of people. It's absolute folly. Nevertheless, he can't even stop his own death. Jesus tells his disciples, don't worry, you can't change a hair on your head, white or black, let alone live forever. <clears throat> so, instead of trusting in princes, we absolutely must trust in the blessing of God and, and trust in the God of Israel. The, the psalmist instructs, do not trust in princes. And then he goes on to say, blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And that, those two phrases are called parallelism. This is important to see in verse two, it said, I will praise the Lord. And then the next phrase was, I will praise God. And here in this verse, verse five, he says, blessed is he whose help is in God, whose hope is in the Lord. And instantly we might be thinking, okay, those are different names for the same subject or object. But as we'll see in a few minutes, I think the psalmist is hinting at something here. He's the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Whenever you hear these phrases in the Bible, heaven and earth and the sea, that should instantly transport you back to Genesis 1. Those are the ways that are describing the earth, the heavens and the earth and the sea. Everywhere that men or creatures live in our world, heavens, that is the air, the land, the earth, and the sea, that is, you know, the waters, the oceans. So by calling to mind the creation, the psalmist is bringing to the forefront this connection between the creator God and the deliverer God. The same God of Jacob is the God who was the creator we do not have a different God who began all this and then a God who is involved in human life. This calls to mind our attention to God's eternal power, his self-sufficiency, and his wisdom. Whenever the creator God is put to the forefront in a passage, we have to remember this is the God who existed before creation. 
That is, God created out of the overflow of his power and the overflow of his love and the overflow of his energy. He is not a God who needed creation. He's not a God who needed worship. He's not a God who needed man, but made them out of his grace and out of his love. And he keeps faith forever. The psalmist, by saying it in these ways, is saying that the God who helped Jacob is the same God of creation. And that is the trust and ground for our uh, belief or our, our trust in him. The creator is the one who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he made promises to them, and then he kept faith forever. Whenever you see the phrase steadfast love or keeping faith forever or something of that in the Psalms especially, this is calling to mind God's covenant faithfulness, that he made promises of grace to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And not only did he make promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by calling forth to mind Jacob, he's not only saying God fulfilled all the promises to Abraham, he's also saying God gave a very great promise to the root of God's people who are known as Jacob or Israel, the two names for that, that man in the scriptures. So the psalmist is saying the creator God, the God of creation, the God who existed before creation is the very self-same one who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and is the very same one who delivered his people and has kept them in, uh, in his grace. This is the one who keeps faith forever. God's power, therefore, is our ground for trust. You should think about it this way. If God can make the world and he can cause by his voice alone for the heavens, the earth, and the sea to exist, to be made, and then to be filled with birds and creatures and beasts and, and fish and everything that teems in the waters. If he can make all of that with his word, then I can trust him with my heart. Yes. That, is, that is the ground for my trust. The power of the creator demonstrated at work in creation, that is the grounding for my trusting in him. And so, our God, though, is not merely transcendent. We have this vision here of the God who made the heavens, the earth, and the seas. And then instantly in verse 7, we see this amazing thing. There's this vision of God as the one who is outside and above creation. He's transcendent. He's not limited by the earth. He's not limited by time. He's not limited by energy. He's not limited by physical existence. And then instantaneously, without skipping a beat, he is intimately concerned. There's almost no indication in this psalm that he goes from the, this vision of the creator God to the God who meets the lowest. So think about, about it like this. Here's God in the hierarchy. Here's the creator. Here's the heaven, earth, and seas, and all the creatures who live in them. Human society. And then verse 7, instantaneously, who executes justice for the oppressed. We see this vision of the creator God, the one who has all power, who has all wisdom, who is his own cause for living, for being, and he instantly moves down to take concern for the oppressed, the lowest of society. He executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and fatherless. I believe it's Psalm 8. Who, are, who am I that you are mindful of me? This is written by David. How much more for the lowest in society, the ones who are the oppressed people. 
there are many people in our world who are like that. And just to be very clear, most of us in this room aren't the ones who are oppressed. Now, you should take solace in this when you are oppressed. But I want you to think about the sort of people who are in mind in the psalmist. These are the ones who are ground down by the powers that be. Those who are oppressed against. Those who are the object of social scorn. Those are who this creator God, who, who the highest heavens cannot contain, he takes up the cause of the lowest one in society. The psalmist then extols the virtue of the Lord and his power, but at this point we face a great dilemma when reading the verse, or when reading these verses. What's the great dilemma? Is at this time in Israel's life, the people who read this psalm, none of this is taking place for them. All of these promises that are given over and over are given in active words. The Lord sets the prisoners free. And yet, as we're about to see, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, none of this is coming to pass in Israel's time. God executes the justice, but at this time in Israel, the poor uh, are trampled all the day. The poor have nothing that is their provision or portion. Amos 5 describes them as being ground up like dust, that people walk over them. God gives food to the hungry, but God's people themselves are eaten. If you take a look at Micah, Micah's not talking about people actually eating one another, not cannibalism. He uses the idea of social cannibalism. That is, there, there are these people, God's people, Israel, and all of the people who are in power, their princes, their spiritual leaders, consume them. They eat them up. They take advantage of them economically and spiritually. They oppress them. So how can God feed the hungry when the hungry themselves become food for evil people? The Lord sets the prisoners free, but Israel is in captivity for their transgressions. Ezekiel gives this vision of God taking them away and leading them off in chains. The Lord is said to open the blind eye, but up until this point, as an, as an Israelite reading this passage, this has never happened. This is a promise that's unbelievably great. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down, but the whole nation has been laid in the dust. This is, these are the words that God uses to say how he's going to humble his people. He's going to take them from a, a nation that, as we saw last week, was a vine that was glorious and, and shed its branches over the mountains so that all the nations found rest in its shade. And he's going to take them and bring them down into the dust. The Lord upholds the widow and the orphan, but they are being destroyed by their neighbors. Over and over again, each phrase brings us closer to this question of how can we understand this description by the psalmist of the glory of God in caring for his people when at this time none of these are coming true. And it's this, that as we come to the final verse, Though the prior verses, verses 5 all the way through 9, are all said in active tense or present tense, they're said to be happening now. The Lord sets, opens, lifts, loves, not will lift, will set, etc. That this final verse helps us resolve this great difficulty. The great difficulty is this, that this final verse shows when this will take place. The Lord will reign forever. So what is happening? The psalmist has gone by the Spirit of God 
into the future and is able to see something about how the Lord will save his people. Rather than giving false comfort to Israel, the psalmist is, by the Spirit, looking forward to the day of Christ. And in looking forward to the day of Christ, he is able to see it so clearly that he's able to say, this is happening now. I want you to think about that. The psalmist is, by the Holy Spirit, perceiving a time when the Messiah is revealed and that, that revelation of the Messiah is so certain and so sure that the psalmist is able to right now tell a people trapped in exile, your Lord is opening blind eyes. Your Lord is setting the captives free. You can't understand what God's doing in the time of your exile. What he's doing, if you were able to see it, is he's taking up the concern of the poor and the widow and the orphan. That God is at work even in the midst of their exile. In the book of John, Jesus describes Abraham. And he says of Abraham that Abraham saw my day. That he rejoiced. First Peter talks about the prophets who wrote in times of old. That they were searching within them that person or time that the spirit of Christ was indicating to them would, would uh, reveal Christ and his, the, the persecutions to follow or the sufferings to follow and his subsequent glories. That is to say that this psalmist is able to see the Messiah by the Holy Spirit. And in seeing the Messiah by the Holy Spirit, it is so real that it changes his current reality. That's what I think the psalmist is doing with these verbs that seem to indicate the Lord doing something now. But when we read it, there's a difficulty in understanding how it could possibly be true. When we look around us at our circumstances, none of these seem like they are happening, and yet they are happening. That even in the midst of the exile, God was preparing his people for that time when the Christ would be revealed. This final verse then echoes the first verse, inviting us to remember and reflect. I think this is intentional by the psalmist. At the very first verse, the first phrase is, praise the Lord, and he's telling the people to praise. But interestingly, as an exile, as an Israelite who's trapped in the bondage of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, I read this psalm, and I think to myself, there's no reason for me to praise. He says, praise the Lord, and then he goes on to describe the great glories of the creator and the redeemer and the one who led Israel in faithfulness. And then he goes on to extol the virtue of the Lord. And then he says, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. This psalmist is the herald of God's victory. He's describing beforehand the glory and the beauty and the victory of the Lord and the Lord's reign, and this has to be understood as no one other than the Messiah. In reading the psalm in the light of the Messiah, the anointed one who is able to reign, and identifying him with that word, the Lord, we then are able to see everything in the psalm resolve. All of the puzzle pieces lock into place. They fall into place, and we can read it in such a way as to gain hope so as to not despair. All of God's people should praise him. Why? Because the Lord will reign and that Lord is God. 
You see, often when we read in the scriptures and we see the word Lord, we instantaneously think Yahweh. And oftentimes, especially in a psalm like this, that word is not just describing Yahweh, it's describing the Messiah. And what is so amazing about this is this resolves the great problem. We have the creator God who's beyond heaven and earth, and then the very next verse, without any indication of what's happened at all, he's now concerning himself with the oppressed. That this great and glorious God is able to go from being the transcendent creator who cannot be contained by creation itself to now looking with his eyes upon the lowest person in society. Reading this in reverse now, we see that Christ is the Messiah who is also God. And not only is he also God, he will reign forever and ever. He is the prince who never dies. And he's reigned, he, he reigns enthroned forever. You see how this final verse resolves the great problem? Israel's given a promise through David. There will be a king on the throne forever. And I'll establish his kingdom. And he'll reign. And the great problem in verse 3 is, don't trust in any prince. Don't trust in any king. Don't trust in any so-called lord. They're going to die. And then it resolves at the end. The Lord himself will be that reigning king. He will reign forever. Christ in his present and active reign is bringing the wicked to nothing. Look at verse 9, the second part of the verse. But the way of the wicked the Lord brings to ruin. That is what Jesus Christ is doing right now in his active and present reign. He is bringing the wicked to nothing. We saw in just, a, just a few weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 1 that Christ was ex- installed as the exalted Lord at the right hand of his Father and God caused everything to be subjected to his feet. And then it goes on to describe that we, him, we ourselves as the, body of, as the church of Christ are the body of Christ. That he has subjected everything to Christ and that we ourselves will be part of that manifestation of his reign. Christ is the one who lifts up those who are bowed down, especially the widow and the orphan, especially through his people. When you read the story of, when you read the history of Acts, you notice something very interesting, that almost immediately on the onset of Christian mission is Christian concern for the poor. In Acts chapter 6, we see that the apostles established deacons for the express purpose of taking care of widows. That is how Christ, through his body, takes care of the poor and concerns himself with the cause of the widow and the orphan and the oppressed. Christ, both in his earthly ministry and after it, opened the eyes of the blind, showing his power and calling the apostle Paul. If you remember back in John uh, John chapter uh, 9, we see Jesus interact with this person who is born blind. The disciples ask, why was he born blind? Was it because of his sin or his parents? And Jesus rebukes them for lack of spiritual understanding. He says, you're mistaken. It has nothing to do with sin. The reason he was blind was so that the power of the, the sent one would be revealed. That's the reason. Jesus is the one who is fulfilling this promise. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And not only did he do that in his earthly ministry, he also did that through his spirit after he ascended to heaven. 
by healing the Apostle Paul from his spiritual and physical blindness. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind, and we see the Lord do that only when Christ does that. Christ fed the hungry through his disciples. Remember, we're working our way back up. Verse 7, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Christ gave food to the hungry, both physically in his earthly ministry and spiritually by feeding them his word. In John chapter 6, he says, my words to you are spirit and their life. And then he installs in John 21, he installs Peter as, a, as an apostle for this express purpose, to tend for his lambs and to feed them. Yes. That Peter would give them life-giving word that would give their souls nourishment. This is how Christ, the Lord, feeds the hungry. Christ, in the bosom of his Father, acted in creation, forming and fashioning. Again, we're moving backwards. Verse 6, the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Jesus Christ was active and present in the creation. The New Testament says that Jesus was not only active in creation, but he was the one through whom everything that was made was made. That was happening through the Lord. And we never saw that before his incarnation. Christ is the man who undoes the death of all men. Verse 4, when his breath departs, this is why we don't trust in princes. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. And though Christ's breath departed, he had the right and did take it back to himself. He said of his death, I have the right to lay down my life and the right to take it back up again. That is who the Prince of Peace is. Though if man's plans perish on the day of his death, Christ is the man who establishes his plans in his death and through his death. You see how this is answering this great problem that we see in this passage? No prince can be trusted. No king can be trusted. We need a king and a prince to trust. Christ himself, therefore, is the Prince of Peace, the Son of Man, who not only has salvation, but is its author. Verse 3, do not trust in princes in a Son of Man in whom there is no salvation. And through the manifestation and revelation of Jesus, we see the Prince of Peace, who is the author of salvation, the one who has it and has the right to give it to you. Christ is the one who will cause me to sing forever. For he said, because I live, you will live also. Do you feel that? Do you hear Christ saying to you in your soul, because I live, you will live also. See, this answers the great problem of God's praise should be unending. God's praise should be unceasing. It should go on forever and ever. But the problem is that I, as a mortal, will die. I'm susceptible to death. And so God's praise won't go on forever unless, and only as we see through Christ, I can come back to life again, that I can be restored, that I can once again have breath in my lungs and be able to expel praise through my lips. And because he lives, I will join the great assembly praising God forever and ever. That is what we see in Jesus Christ. I would encourage you that this time of Advent is not just a time of introspection. It's not just a time of repentance, although it is a time of those things. 
But unless we make our way from despair of sin to seeing the great promises of God, it cannot be used in a profitable way. Advent is not a time for us to beat ourselves up or to become so obsessed with finding sin and repenting of it that we forget of the answer to our sin. Sin brings death, and Christ is the answer to my death and your death. Let's close. Father, we thank you so much for this great glory that we see in your Son. We thank you that you allow us, by your Spirit alone, to be able to see. We thank you that you have given your Son the office of opening eyes and opening the eyes of those who are blind. And Lord, without your grace, we are so blind. But we know your promises. We know that they are true. We know that we ought not to trust in men, but we ought to trust in the man, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would give us this spiritual wisdom, that we would be able to answer that prayer that Paul had for his people, that we would know your power, which is the very same power that raised your son from the dead, that that power would be active in us, that we would grow in all grace. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.